but so you originally came to Tufts to play jazz, right? No. Oh. I I originally came to Tufts. I think my intention was to do like electrical engineering or something. I can't actually remember. And um, I had been, you know, playing a lot uh, in high school. And when I was in high school, there were a couple of guys who were jazz pianists. Yes. Uh, who and I played trombone, and so sort of like as you as you know, like they kind of got all the gigs, and I was sort of studying and playing by myself. Yeah. And then I came to Boston, and there was music happening, and I found this great tenor player called Saul. That was his name. Can't remember. This great drummer, the bass player. We had a quartet, and we started playing, we played out, and I got cocktail jobs, you know, light about my age, so you're like 17 and playing in bars, nice. like Copley Plaza around there. There's a bar called the, um, Copley Plaza called the, what's it called? Tree Bar or something, because it had a tree growing inside. Okay. But played there a lot. I in a lot of trouble because I really like Coltrane, big fan of like McCoy Tyner, and so I would get sort of outside sometimes on some standards. And, you know, it annoys people. They get annoyed by that. Ah, uh, not they'll anymore. Come and, they'll come up and chat with you. Well, yeah, maybe not anymore, but in the late 80s, they definitely did. <laughs> yeah, so why did, so you came to Tufts originally uh, for electrical engineering? Yes, um, yes, I did. So how did you, how did you find physics and fall in love with physics? Well, so <laughs> I played a lot of jazz my first two years and uh, we actually built a recording studio at this house in Medford uh, in the basement uh, me and another guy called Greg Wattenberg who's now a pretty notable record producer very okay. cool guy and uh, I essentially just didn't do much work for school <laughs> and so I went back junior year and I was like registering with the freshmen and that was probably a bad sign Yeah. and so um, you know uh, the agreement that I had uh, unsurprisingly, with uh, my parents, was, was that four years would be uh, would be subsidized, and so I had run out of two, and I needed to figure something out pretty fast. And so I went through back back in those days, the course books were printed, and I went through to try to figure out like what degrees you could get in two years, <laughs> right? And it was like math and physics. And I went to the math department and I went to the physics department and I discovered that um, Tufts had, and really has even more now, um, a terrific high energy physics department. And it was all these guys who like were in Berkeley and stuff in the 60s and were these sort of counterculture guys who are still around, just really exceptionally cool guys who were really smart. And they had like their own clubhouse in this old cheese factory called Bacon Hall, which is gone now, but there's that other place across the railroad tracks. But um, they were doing these crazy high-energy physics experiments there, and you would go over there, and they had all these awesome computers, and they're, like, welding and doing all this electronic stuff, and it was like Nirvana, and it was really motivational. So I somehow managed to get all the credits for graduation in, like, two years with those guys, and uh, I wanted to graduate school. And uh, it was just great. Wrote a thesis, wrote papers, all that stuff. It's wow. really neat. The, the only, uh, you know, fatality, the, 
the um, unintended collateral damage of that was that I literally just stopped playing entirely, mm. like 100%. And it was only recently that I started playing some piano again. But you, I, on online, which may not be accurate, it says that you uh, released a paper during sophomore year in physics. Yes. Okay, so that was with these yeah. high-energy physicists. No, no, that that actually, so, so um, the summer after my sophomore year, mm-hmm. um, I uh, took an internship in New Mexico with a guy called Fukushima, Eiichi Fukushima, huh. who was uh, this awesome Japanese guy who was sort of a mountaineering legend in the 60s who would, like, you know, climb all the highest peaks and stuff. And he was, he had his group of guys working on, different things in nuclear magnetic resonance and MRI essentially um, in New Mexico. And, you know, and I, I, I shouldn't short, short change that because that was really where um, that, that was really where my attention was caught academically because, you know, that summer I got to, um, you know, see this magnificent thing that happens in physics where you have a bunch of math that you do and then you build stuff and then you see, you know, that nature, you know, kind of exposes herself to you and you can understand these great things and, and right there out of the machine that you built. And so, um, you know, that was, that was really pivotal. And out of that came my first, yeah, published academic paper when I was a sophomore, which was pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you were a jazzer the first two years and you were a physicist the second. Were you either a gamer or an entrepreneur during those four years? How would you describe yourself? Well, I mean, I, we, I was an entrepreneur with the, I guess, with the recording studio. Right, right. Um, but, uh, you know, and I'd always always been a gamer back when, before gamer was a word. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, I, whenever I would get my hands on a computer, as would anybody in my generation of programmers, the first thing you do is try to make it play games. <laughs> because, because that was really hard. I mean, this was before really there was any sort of organized graphics and every computer was different. They were slow, difficult to work on, bad tools. And you get them to do these magical things. And it really felt special then because, you know, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, and things that people take for granted now were really hard. And so it was a huge amount of pleasure in getting the machine to do something which wasn't boring, like which wasn't like, you know, crunching out or spitting out numbers on, you know, fan fold sheets of paper. Um, or, you know, printing out a list of students and grades or whatever it was that people expected computers to do, you know, in the 70s and early 80s. It would do something magical. It would have this world in it that you could play in. And, you know, that was incredibly alluring. And so everyone I knew who worked on computers, you know, who is my age, really just wanted to to make games and, and play them and show them to their friends. But it was very, you know, it was very amateur because... There was no game industry, really. Uh-huh. And um, all of the stuff that we sort of take for granted about games now didn't exist yet. So when did you first actually do game development? Um, when I was a graduate student at Fermilab. Uh-huh. Um, the uh, postdoc path that I had was the superconducting supercollider. And the Clinton administration canceled that experiment. And it incidentally handed the future of basic science over to Europe at CERN, um, which I think is a dumb thing to do. Yeah. 
But, you know, me and my generation of guys who were graduate students then really had a choice to make about what to do because the thing you wanted to do wasn't going to be available in a time scale that worked. Um, so, you know, we all went and did different things, and I saw an ad on the uh, bulletin board of the physics department for a physics programmer needed for a car game. There's this new problem that um, these guys uh, in Cambridge, a bunch of MIT guys, uh, and me, it turned out, we're making, you know, some of the first ever 3D games, along with a guy in Texas called Carmack, who's uh, a really good friend of mine now. And uh, we had this problem that in 2D, in games, keeping stuff, you know, out of other stuff, like collisions and all that's pretty easy. 3D, it gets, you know, harder, like a lot harder, like a thousand times harder um, compared to 2D, because it's a totally different, more complex problem. And people would figure it out. So I was lucky enough to get to work on that and write, you know, one of the first of the first sort of general purpose physics systems for games. Right. Right along right alongside my friends who were writing some of the first of the first three D systems for games. And um, you know, we kinda of pulled stuff up from there. It was great. Yeah. How I mean, for kids to land a job after undergrad or I mean I guess this was after grad, but even so is still so exciting. I imagine you would, you must have been over the moon to get this job. Yeah, I mean, it was a little different um, because, you know, that when that happened, I mean, I was still pretty bummed about the super collider. Right. You know, um, once you get to operate on a machine like the Tevatron at Fermilab, kind of hard to go back. Um, <laughs> and also, like, you know... It was great. Games were really spurned back then. And again, it's it's hard to remember, but like, you would tell somebody in like in like the early nineties that you were a game designer, and the answer was like, "What? You're, you're what? People <laughs> people make those? Aren't those like made in Japan? You know?" And <laughs> it was crazy. Um, you know, now it's almost sort of respected, which is bizarre. You can go to school for it, but then it was like this nuts thing that you did, and you had to teach yourself everything. And, you know, none of the computers or anything were supposed to, really supposed to do that. And, you know, the consoles were all these you know, sort of 2D things is before PlayStation. And so this idea that you'd be doing 3D games, you know, you'd have to explain for 20 minutes what the hell it was you did for a living. It's really interesting. You know, now I'm a game developer and everybody thinks you're, you know, rich and super cool. <laughs> unbelievably ironic and weird. <laughs> Yeah, what what do you think that when did that change happen? It happens when gamers get older. You know, it it happens when you know the guy who decides what news stories get promoted on CNN changes from being somebody to whom games are kind of alien to being somebody who grew up playing games. That's mm-hmm. when it changes right there because now they get it. So it's like you. I mean, you understand that playing a game or watching a movie or listening to music or, you know, hanging out with your friends, these are all like forms of entertainment and they're more or less occupied the same kind of, you know, process in your head of, you know, entertainment and escapism and whatever else and you know, enthusiastic about the characters and all that, what goes on in it, you know, in a, in a game that you love probably equally to like a piece of anime that you love or something. Um, but to the generation before ours, you know, games were... Um, you know, weird, threatening, novelty thing. And so it was not understood that it was sort of entertainment like that. You know, like games were always 
reviewed as some sort of technology or something. So like you'd right. open the newspaper and there'd be a review of like a network switch and also a review of Doom. <laughs> you know? Right. And it didn't make any sense to us because it should have been reviewed, reviewed like in the movies section or something with the other entertainment because that's how we were thinking about it while we were making it. Uh-huh. So it's just taken a little while for the population to grow kind of old enough that, you know, it becomes mainstream. And that's, it turns out, how all sorts of technologies became mainstream from like rock and roll to like the telephone. Mm. You know? People were freaked out about the telephone in ways that are fairly surprisingly analogous to the way that they were freaked out about games. Yeah, uh, so this vision that I'm not sure you totally had um, crystallized then, but it seems like you have from, t- from hearing you talk, did this um, sort of creative vision go into what you wanted the Xbox to be um, in terms of immersion or uh, a more focused video game culture? Uh, not, not really. You know, Xbox was about one simple thing, which was that, um, you know, enabling creative people to do stuff produces better creative stuff. You know, when you give somebody the opportunity to do something awesome, they do something awesome. Like, mm-hmm. look at the proliferation of you know, uh, like movie making tools and stuff for iOS and all of the incredible cool stuff that, you know, even young kids come up with, with, you know, iMovie and other editors and stuff. Right. Because you just give them the opportunity. You know, the Xbox idea was really simple. It was that we were entering a world where Sony was talking about how PlayStation 2 was going to replace the PC and all this. And I was the, you know, program manager for entertainment graphics or some title like this at Microsoft. So I knew all the PC graphics stuff. And I also knew, you know, about tools and how hard it was to do, you know, um, cool 3D and really nice computer graphics on, on different platforms. And I realized that, you know, it was really about tools. It was about, you know, um, about getting somebody's artistic vision into the machine, you know, more than the power of the machine or anything else, even then. I guess that's really clear now, but it was really clear to me then. And it seemed that the PC had all the advantages. If you could just make a platform that was consistent, Mm. a platform where there weren't like 50 million configurations and you had to sort of do whatever you were doing for the least common denominator technology. Like if you could just stabilize that and let people use the PC tools you have something special because everybody was using PC tools anyway, even to make stuff for Sony, but it was a real pain in the butt. So it seemed to me that there was an opportunity to, you know, change things up because you could make a box that would be designed for the people who make the games uh-huh. um, to be easy to use and to be powerful in a way that was useful, as opposed to being powerful in a way that was just cool on paper, hmm. and that would be backed up by, you know, technology and stuff. And Microsoft seemed ironically and sort of um, luckily the right place to do it. So we did it. So it seems like today everything has changed in that regard. You know, a tiny little iPod can have that much power. So it actually seemed like it went the complete opposite um, direction. Did that, is that, did that contribute to your um, idea for innovation leisure to to take advantage of one of those branches? 
You're, just, you're asking really nice segue-driven questions. Very impressive. Um, <laughs> so actually, everything turned out exactly the way that, that I, I thought it would. You know, the, the predominance of iOS and Android as platforms for games is a result of the fact that you know there's Unity and Corona and tons of tools and a staple platform that's more or less ubiquitous that offers a palette for you know game designers to experiment on. You know, when it's easy to try experiments, you know, from Flappy Bird to, you know, Angry Birds, et cetera, you can try them. And if you can release them a lot, then you can invent new genres and new, um, you know, new play styles and things. And that's what we've seen going on. And it's like, you know, it's very exciting. It's very cool. And it's obvious that, you know, the high technology is not the thing that drives it. You know, mm. the thing that drives it is whether or not creative people can quickly get stuff out. So it's an you know it's an exciting time. It's a terrifying time because all the business models are out of people. And as cool as it is to have all these free to play games, you know it's also dragging behind it some pretty abhorrent free to play business models that burn out a lot of the audience and kill a lot of innovation. So we've really got to figure out what the deal with that is. That's sort of a hard problem. Yeah, I, I noticed um, in researching a little bit that the most recent uh, article I could find about innovation leisure was from from nine months ago, and I was sort of wondering why that was. Oh, well, that's because we've been, we've been sort of baking our games. They are going to be released in a minute. We're actually in a closed beta on two of them. Oh. And so, yeah, just watch the space. I will. But, man, it's, it's an interesting time to figure out, you know, how to launch a game because there's so much kind of backlash starting against free-to-play and everybody feeling really milked, you know? Right. Um, there's this great um, uh, tweet from a friend of mine during the Game Developers Conference that was basically, you know, Jimmy, here, look look at this credit card statement and tell me where the bad man monetized you, <laughs> you know, um, or point to where the bad man monetized you. Right. And it's like really how a lot of people feel right now. It's like you're just getting jacked all the time because the game won't let you have fun until you pay it. You know? mm. And that's not quite the right spirit. So uh, it's interesting times, and I'm having to make a lot of decisions about how business models are going to work, and everybody is, you know, and we will see. We'll see how it works. Was it hard after um, Capital Entertainment folding to take this kind of big risk again? Well, you know, Capital Entertainment Group got an A round of funding and then I got recruited out of there to sort of do the same thing at CAA where it worked pretty well. Okay. So I was really, um, I was sort of the opposite. I was really emboldened by that, wow. by Frank. Um, and then went on at CAA, um, you know, I was, strangely enough, like the agent behind like a lot of really amazing game designers and games and stuff from, you know, Guitar Hero to, you know, the the whole uh, respawn saga and so you know i felt uh really strong about all that stuff and that this direction of you know creativity driving stuff was the right direction mm. and you know, i wanted to push it really hard so it seemed very natural yeah so something like microsoft spark seems seems to fit in to what you're to what you're talking about does this seem like the the future of gaming something that's very immersive while also being creative uh, the future of gaming is is, is just you know um, uh, delighting the audience. You know, 
never a technology or a business plan. You know, as much as these big companies would like to have, you know, initiatives and initiatives and business plans that, you know, are going to be the future. Usually, that's just sort of jumping on trends. And weirdly enough, man, you know, Sony made their VR headset, and then immediately Oculus gets swallowed up by Facebook, right. Mark, and all those dudes. And um, you know, we'll see what that's about. But suddenly, because Sony was lagging behind, they're kind of ahead, it seems. Uh-huh. So, how weird is that? <laughs> well, um, so before, uh, so we were talking about game development a little bit, but you've worked with so many partners and in so many different groups. Uh, is there any, what works for you in terms of a partnership? Is it a, a smaller group or one manager with many people to sort of be able to fulfill all the all the roles? Um, you know, really the only thing that works is when you have people who are really excited about what they're doing. And, you know, you have to organize them. Hey, man. Hey, okay, cool. Um, so you were saying that you were organizing something when we got cut off. Oh, uh, yeah, and everything sort of just sound robotic. <laughs> yeah, so you just need to make sure everybody wants to actually do the thing they're doing. And right. You don't have people around who just are there because they think it's cool or they're kind of like seeking heat. And then just be sure that everybody knows what the deal is and, you know, stays excited. There's no rule. Um, yeah. Especially with games because games are, you know, kind of a combination of everything that's hard about technology and also everything that's hard about creativity at the same time. Um, you just have to really be on top of um, making sure that people's enthusiasms are aligned, you know? And it's, you know, not unlike anything else. Yeah. So what's been one of the um, most memorable experiences you've had in the video game world? It can be in terms of partnerships or just in terms of awesome experiences in general. Hmm. I think, um, you know, like, I, I seemed to sort of vanish for like 10 years when I was at CAA because I was like behind the scenes. Right. Um, but, um, you know, what I was doing was uh, arranging financing and, you know, protecting my friends, basically, and their companies. And, you know, it was really, it was a, it was a crazy awesome feeling and also like a really adult feeling to be sort of invisible and you know making sure that everything was working out okay Uh and being able to you know watch your friends succeed and help them to do great stuff was just awesome it was like it was super super awesome and sometimes it was really hard you know it's a miracle that um you know the guitar hero exists or brutal legend or that you know respawn started and all these things these guys you know worked so hard and it was the odds were so stacked against everybody and you know we sort of pulled through and it's really kind of a special thing cool really special thing i think everybody as they get older realizes that it's the moments where you're part of a group of people that does something special that are the best and it's not the sort of like glory moment where you're the guy standing up you know (laughs) holding the torch (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's an in, it's interesting because so many people want to sort of work in this world for maybe the wrong reasons, but I think that there are a lot of people who sort of need to get involved for it to stay creative. And what would you recommend to those people who can't maybe see where their role is yet? Just keep on working on what you like, you know, because the what what'll happen is, you know, 
you'll learn, you know, which is probably the most pleasurable thing you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, Feynman would always talk about the pleasure of finding things out, and that's really important. And um, you know, you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised at what you learn from the people around you, from the at least the the sort of most unexpected source. And you know, it'll change your life. It'll be great. I promise. And you know, the your need for glory and to be the person who is, you know, has the spotlight on you will diminish with time and the stuff you really care about will be, you know, when you've done something really new and when you've done something really hard. And to do that, you always need help. So keep it in mind. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, that's a perfect point to end on. But just before, I was wondering if you wanted to say anything about your book, what, where, where are you in that in that process? Um, I am doing this thing called writing, which it turns out is very hard to do. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> at some point, it will be done. Okay. And uh, there may be more than one now, which is remarkable and strange. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I, uh, uh, nice to talk to you, man. You know, it occurs to me that. You know, everything that we just talked about today with respect to working with people, you could probably learn by playing in a jazz quartet. Yeah, yeah. You know, because nothing happens without everybody, but, you know, nothing also happens in case everybody in that quartet, you know, can stand on their own. And that's a really interesting way to think about it. Games and uh, and jazz, I love it. All right, well, (laughs) me too. Thanks for talking to me, man. It was uh, nice. It It was nice hearing these questions.